And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Sarah? Good. We got pancakes this morning. (laughs) Yes. And it's a bright blue sky. Yeah, it's good. Wonderful October day. Yeah. Great time to watch a horror movie. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But I believe we are actually watching... Four horror movies? Five, maybe six. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, no, we're, we're watching one film, but it is an anthology movie. Mm-hmm. A classic horror anthology movie. Some might argue the classic horror anthology movie. Oh, wow. It is Dead of Night from 1945. So Dead of Night is significant for many reasons. And one of those is that it was the first homemade horror movie made in Britain since the BBFC banned horror movies in 1940. When you say homemade... I mean, like, made in Britain. Okay. (laughs) Because I was, like, so, like, an independent film? Like, what do you mean by that? No, I I mean as in not U.S. movies being brought over. Cool. Um, The BBFC believed that horror movies were unsuitable entertainment during wartime. Now, it is worth saying that the BBFC had also banned horror movies um, in 1936 and lifted that ban in 1939. We got, like, three or four of them, and then they banned it again in 1940. So, you know, Britain has had a very... um, Tenuous. ...relationship with horror movies. Yes. And a lot of the British horror films that get touted are actually, like, Todd Slaughter's melodramatic films, which we have thus far said that they are not horror based on our definitions. Right. Or um, sort of gussied up thrillers like The Door with Seven Locks in 1940, which was the last British film that we saw for the show. Okay. Since 1940, the landscape of British cinema has changed quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, like, it's five years. So to tell the story of kind of what the... British film industry looks like now, we have to talk about J. Arthur Rank. J. Arthur Rank was born in 1888. He was the son of the owner of a large flour milling business. Mm -hmm. He did poorly in school and ended up working for his father at the flour mills. In his middle age, he taught Sunday school for his Methodist church. And he noticed that he got more engagement and a better response out of his students when he showed religious films in class. When he ran out of these religious films to show, he began making his own. <laughs> Great. The, are these uh, are these archived anywhere? I doubt it. Oh, God. They'd be so bad, I'm sure. He founded the Religious Film Society to distribute these films that he would make, to other churches and schools. Oh, my God. This was 1933. Uh, (laughs) Is this the origin story of Veggie Tales? When the Methodist Times newspaper complained about the negative influence of films on British family life, 
the London Evening News responded that instead of complaining about it, maybe the Methodist Church could provide a solution. <laughs> you don't like it, make your own. So, uh, apparently that's been an argument for many years. So Rank answered the challenge, <laughs> and he networked with film producer John Corfield, and also the Lady Ewell, who at that time was the richest woman in Britain. Ewell saw investing in film production as sort of a fun financial hobby, no different than her investments in Arabian horses. And so the three formed the British National Films Company in 1934. In 1935, they produced Turn of the Tide, the story of two rival fishing families. But they found, as many indie producers do, that the process of distributing and exhibiting the film was actually harder than just making it. Uh, the film showed as a second feature in a few cinemas across the country, but not enough for it to turn a profit. So, looking to solve this problem, they had made this production company, right? Mm -hmm. But in order to shoot the film, they had to rent out studio space, and then they had to like convince a distributor, in this case, um, Gamont British, to show the film, and then Gamont British had to convince exhibitors to show it in their cinemas, and it just, you know... It didn't go very far. So, step one to fixing this problem. The three of them bought an estate in Buckinghamshire and built Pinewood Film Studios. Oh, oh shit. Still today, one of the largest and most important soundstage complexes in Britain. Yeah, you see their credit come up a lot on, like, James Bond movies. Yes. Uh, every single James Bond movie has been shot there. Um, Pinewood Studios is a soundstage complex, and there is one of the stages that is just called the 007 stage. Yeah. It's just where they make Bond movies. <laughs> Rank then discovered that the British film industry at the time was closely intertwined with the American film industry, and that he was largely shut out of his own market. 80% of British screen time before World War II was occupied by American films. Mm -hmm. And the only reason a lot of British movies were being made at all was due to um, sort of British content regulations. Yeah, quote quickies. Exactly. Yeah, as Canadians, we are kind of familiar with that struggle. Exactly. So, Rank decided that he needed to buy out the distributors and the exhibitors. Sure. If you got, if you got the money... In 1935, he partnered with producer C.M. Wolfe, who had resigned from the company he founded, Gamont British, to form with rank General Film Distributors. No nonsense. Love it. In 1939, Rank bought out Corfield and Lady Yule's shares in Pinewood. Oh, shit. So he had a lot of money. Or Yule was just like, eh. He, I'm, I'm done. He's getting more money as time. They're making films throughout this whole process, right? Absolutely. So at each step of the way, he's using the money he is making to invest back into gaining more control. Also in 1939, he bought Alexander Corda's Denim Film Studios, another soundstage complex. And then he bought the Odeon Cinemas Theater Chain. And then he bought Elstree Studios... So he's just buying everything. And Elstree, by the way, is where they shot, like, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Sure. And in 1941, he bought out Gamont British and its subsidiary, <laughs> Gainsborough Pictures. Uh, I bet that was, like, some sweet revenge from the guy who had previously resigned. The same year, he bought Lime Grove Studios, 
which is one of the main studios Gamont British used, as well as buying out the British Paramount Cinemas chain, so that by the mid-1940s, Rank owned five film studios, three production companies, two distribution companies, two exhibition companies, and 619 cinemas, all under the umbrella of what became known as the Rank Organization. (laughs) Why would you call it that? That sounds so evil. Also, I feel like that podcast, Rank and Vile, should do like a special on films related to the Rank Organization. Sure. Yeah, the overlap potential there is just really good. In 1943, his father died. And Rank inherited the flour milling business and added it to his vast holdings with the goal of improving wartime food production. Good. Okay. Films produced under the Rank banner at this time included Alexander Korda's Technicolor fantasy films, the Charles Dickens adaptations of David Lean, the William Shakespeare films of Laurence Olivier, and the beloved works of filmmaking team Powell and Pressburger. Uh, which would include films like The Red Shoes, for instance. Rank founded his own acting school, the Company of Youth, which was commonly called the Charm School. Sure. What I do appreciate is, like, he started from the bottom now, he's on top. Right. But, like, the reason he started was, like, we need more Methodist Christian content. Right. But now that he has all these things, it's not like he's, like, enforcing... Or at least it seems like he's not enforcing a particular kind of movie or anything. Like, he's just wanting to make British Mm -hmm. content. Yes. Um, One of his production heads said that family-friendly films were the company policy, but a lot of critics noticed that, like, he didn't seem to be producing any sort of specifically Methodist Christian content like he said he was going to be. He was just investing in the British film industry. So you're, you're right on in noticing that. So in 1944, Rank purchased the production company and studio facility called Ealing Studios. Now, Ealing is the oldest continually operating studio facility for film production in the world. It was originally built in 1902. Wow. In 1929, it was purchased from pioneer British filmmaker Will Barker by theater producer Basil Dean in order to produce films for his Associated Talking Pictures distribution company. In 1938, Dean left the company, and he was replaced by legendary British film producer Michael Balkin. Now, we've talked about Michael Balkin before on the show. Um, To give you a brief reminder, maybe, Daniel Day-Lewis is his grandson. So Michael Balkin is the guy who founded Gainsborough Pictures in 1923, and he continued producing films under that banner when Gamont British bought Gainsborough. In addition to producing many of the early films of Alfred Hitchcock, we've seen Michael Balkin films with The Ghoul in 1933 and The Man Who Changed His Mind in 1936. Uh, So for more information about Balkin and his life and career, you can go back to those two episodes. Balkan left Gamont British when it became clear that the company was having financial difficulties. Leading to them being bought by Rank. Right. And he took a job at MGM British and just hated it. 
frequently clashing with Louis B. Mayer over film policy in Britain. And so, when he was invited to take over Ealing Studios, he readily agreed. Balkan discontinued the ATP name and started distributing the films under just the banner of Ealing Studios. Under his leadership, Ealing became one of the most respected and successful British studios in the world. So, of course, Rank bought it in 1944. <laughs> Added it, to my collection. Yes. At least, yeah, I, that, that's maybe not fair. Rank is clearly doing things with what he's purchasing. Yeah. He's not just purchasing it then. So it was Balkan who spearheaded the production of Dead of Night at Ealing Studios. Okay. Previous horror anthology movies had used a single director and a recurring cast for their segments. Um, remind me, Sarah, what are some of the previous horror anthology movies we've seen? Uh, so there's only been two, mm-hmm. but there are some that are like anthology adjacent that I'll just mention as well. Right. So the two actually anthology movies were first the 1919 Unheimliche Geschichten, which is episode four. So that's how early we first came into an anthology film. Uh, it's currently ranked number 53, mm-hmm. which is pretty good for something that early. Yeah. Um, and it featured five stories. The first one was called The Apparition, which was about um, the plague, basically. Right, yeah. The yeah. guy going into the hotel, and mm-hmm. his like, fiance's there, and then she disappears, and no one ever actually saw her, but they were covering it up that she died from the plague. Yes. Um, the second one is The Hand, where, like, a guy kills a guy, and the hands come back from the right. dead guy to kill the first guy. Yes. Um, the third one is an adaptation of Poe's The Black Cat. One of many. One of many. The fourth is The Suicide Club. Yes. Another adaptation, and it's very, uh, it's about, like, a club of people who commit suicide for the thrill. Like, yeah. will they be the one to commit suicide tonight? Right. Um, and then the fifth was an original uh, story called The Spectre. Which we determined was not horror. Yeah, it was like a little comedy bit at the end. Yeah. Our other anthology movie is the remake of Unheimliche Geschichten in 1932. Right. Um, This time only featuring three stories. It was unique as an anthology. Like, we consider it an anthology because it's adapting an anthology film before, but there's a through line. Yeah, it's sort of a bit of like an omnibus movie. Yeah, so it begins with a semi-adaptation of The Black Cat. The second story is The System of Dr. Tarr and Professor Feather, where it's like the mental asylum. Yes. And then the third one is The Suicide Club. Right. Now, the through line is we're following a reporter in uh, Germany who's chasing after a mad scientist, Mm -hmm. Paul Wagner. Yes. Um, And ultimately, we determined that the 1932 and Hanlegar was not horror because the reporter is our hero. Yeah, it was a thriller, basically. Yes. Yeah. So what is interesting to me is we had an anthology film, like a true anthology film in 1919, the remake of which was, as you said, like an omnibus with some kind of through line rather than a set anthology mm-hmm. film. The other films that I'm about to mention have an anthology feel, but aren't true anthologies. The reason I bring this up is because the 32 film is not quite an anthology. So these films would be La Llorona from 1933. Right, because it's a bunch of, like, different flashbacks. Exactly, yeah. Like, a majority of that film is flashbacks of how La Llorona 
the spirit has affected people throughout the years. That's episode 41B, if you want to take a listen. Um, then in 1943, we had Le Main du Diable. Yeah. So um, that one, like, it has a through line, but it also is kind of like, you know, how have these people traded their souls for these magic hands? Yes. Yeah. Sort of similar kind of thing to La Llorona, just like the way that this supernatural force has proceeded through the ages. Yeah. So that's episode 103, if you want to take a listen. And most recently, as a sort of anthology, is House of Frankenstein from 1944. Yeah. Um, not so much like the latter two-thirds, but the first part where it's like, here's a speedrun of Dracula. And we describe that as having an anthology feel. Yeah, again, there's like a through line, because like Karloff and J. Carol Nash's characters are through the whole movie. But it, the three-act structure is basically, here's a Dracula story, here's a Wolfman story, here's a Frankenstein story. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so... It's interesting that it's been, like, 30 years yeah. since our last, like, true anthology film, and it was in Germany. Yes. Yeah. That, that being said, specifically horror anthology, I did not look into whether there were anthology movies of other genres. Yeah, I would think that there, there probably was, um, but I'm not super familiar. The only one that I know of that's probably, like, worth mentioning because people listening to the show are probably yelling at us about it right now, is um, Waxworks, which mm-hmm. was Paul Lenny's anthology film in Germany in the mid-20s that inspired Carl Lemley to hire him and bring him over to America to do Cat in the Canary. And that film often gets considered a horror movie, but it's it's not. Like, the different stories are all completely different genres. There's, like, a comedy one and a thriller one and a historical one, mm-hmm. and they're all sort of all over the place. Now, Waxworks, it's like we're in a wax museum, and here is one of the figures. Let's see, like, the story that they represent. Yeah, exactly. Um, the 1919 Eerie Tales in Hanlika is uh, these three portraits in, like, a library or a bookstore. It's a bookstore, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so there's sort of this framing device, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, the thing about Waxworks is it's definitely expressionist, but there's a modern tendency to just term everything that was German expressionist as horror, which is not true. Accurate. Yeah. So the thing that Dead of Night does that changes the game for anthology films is it uses a different director and a different cast in each segment. Mm, okay. Yeah, because, for example, with both in Heimlich Geschichten's were both directed by Richard Oswald and had, like, a recurring cast and you know we just said waxworks was paul lenny and all these other sort of movies of course were one director and and a consistent cast right yeah the reason this was done for dead of night is because part of the impetus for doing it was to show off what the members of the ealing team could do that makes sense yeah it's sort of like when a record label puts out like a compilation album of all the artists who are on the label Absolutely. Like, like that's the idea. Like, they've basically just been bought by rank, so here we're going to make a movie that shows the new boss, like, here's what each of our directors on staff can do. There is a framing sequence to Dead of Night, and then there are five individual segments through the film. The Hearse Driver, which is based on The Bus Conductor by E.F. Benson. The Christmas Story. The Haunted Mirror. The Golfer's Story, which is based on The Inexperienced Ghost by H.G. Wells. And finally, The Ventriloquist Dummy, which is probably the most famous segment. So, since we've got a mix of sort of original stories and adaptations, it's probably a good idea to learn a bit about what those adaptations are adapting. 
Uh, so what can you tell us about them, Sarah? Sure. Um, so E.F. Benson, Edward Frederick Benson, mm-hmm. was born in Berkshire, England, to Wellington College's headmaster, Edward White Benson, and his wife, Mary Sedgwick. Oh, I thought maybe her name would be like Edward Clarissa Benson or something. Because <laughs> everybody's name has been Edward something Benson so far. <laughs> um, now, this was a very academically inclined family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Edward's older brother, Arthur, was also an author. And he wrote lyrics to the song, the patriotic song, Land of Hope and Glory. Okay. His sister, Margaret, was an Egyptologist. And cool. his younger brother, Robert Hugh Benson, was an author and a clergyman. Okay. Now, E.F. Benson, for his part, uh, he went to several schools, of which Marlborough College was probably the most influential, as it would end up being the setting of one of his famous novel series called David Blaze. <laughs> <laughs> um, and his first nonfiction work was titled Sketches from Marlborough, published in 1888. Benson would write nonfiction, memoirs, satire, and even romantic supernatural melodrama, which is a fancy way of saying gothic horror. Yeah. That's what academics like to call gothic horror when they want to sound proper. Many short stories of his atmospheric, humorous, and satirical ghost stories were published in magazines like Pearson's or Hutchinson's. Uh Our story today, The Bus Conductor, uh, was first published in the Paul Mall magazine in 1906, later collected in 1912 and published in the collection The Room in the Tower and Other Stories. So to give you a little bit of a plot summary, I couldn't find, like, a full plot summary of the story, so I found the short story uh-huh. and read it. So this is an original plot synopsis. Uh-huh. Not, not, not one regurgitated from somewhere else. <laughs> So there are these two gentlemen, and they've just returned from ghost hunting. Okay, so it's the cast of BuzzFeed Unsolved. (laughs) It really fucking is! But at the turn of the century. Yeah, so there's a Ryan Bergara, who is a believer, who is our narrator, and then and Hugh, who is the Shane, that is to say, the skeptic. Okay. And Hugh is kind of chiding our narrator for, like, you know, you get so scared, why do you go ghost hunting? Um, And then he explains that his theory is that ghost sightings are objective. That is, believing or not believing in ghosts is not a factor on whether you actually see them. Right. I mean, that would, you would hope. If you want to say (laughs) that ghosts exist, that's a good position to take. And at this point, Hugh tells a ghost story where he was staying at the narrator's house. He stays up late, and it's kind of stuffy in his room, so he opens the window. And down the street, he hears the clip-clop of a horse with a cart. As it pulls up and stops in front of the house, um, he sees that the driver is dressed as a bus conductor, but he is driving a hearse. And the conductor looks up at him at the window and says... Just room for one inside, sir. And this really freaks him out. He goes back to bed, and he tries to rationalize it away, like Mm -hmm. I was dreaming or, you know, these things. He actually suspects that, like, his friend's uh, actual driver was sick and died, and they were trying to, like, dispose of the body quietly so as to not, like, freak him out. Weird. Yeah, but that's, that's a whole side thing. Anyways, one month later, 
He's back in London, and he's going to catch a bus to go visit the narrator again. And as he's catching the bus, he meets the same bus conductor, who says, who's driving a bus, Mm -hmm. and he says, just room for one more, sir. Uh, And Hugh freaks out and is like, no, I'll take the next bus. And just as the bus is pulling away, a car crashes into it. Uh, And then what I like about this short story is that it ends with Hugh going, and that's my story. (laughs) (laughs) So Benson would die in 1940 of throat cancer. He would never marry and actually was very likely gay. Sure. He was never open like his contemporary, Oscar Wilde. Mm. Um, actually, he has a fun, like, dig at Oscar Wilde in this in the short story. Oh, really? Um, so you know how Oscar Wilde has, like, this one quote of, like, brevity is the soul of wit? Right. Well, uh, the narrator in the story says, brevity is the soul of wit, but it is the ruin of storytelling. <laughs> yeah, so while Benson was never, like, out... Uh, he has diary entries about having crushes on people, um, such as uh, a diary entry from when he was in King's College. But he fell in love with this one guy named Vincent York. The quote, which I love, is, I feel perfectly mad about him just now. Uh, if only he knew, and yet I think he does. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, he was actually friends with uh, many um, men who were part of like this circle of gay friends, basically. And there were times where he shared a villa with uh, pianist John Ellingham Brooks at the Italian island named Capri, uh, which was a popular island with the homosexual community. So he's gay, he's just not out. Right, but he did have a villa on Gay Island. Yes, that he shared (laughs) (laughs) with the pianist. Yes, I'm sure he did share it with the pianist. (laughs) Jesus. Now, what's surprising is, like, I couldn't find a full synopsis of the short story, but the idea of, like, a close call or a premonition of a close call uh, with death kind of inspired this urban legend, which, if you want to learn more about it, you can just search for Room for One More Urban Legend. Modern examples of this kind of legend is, like, you know, almost getting into an elevator, Room for One More into the elevator, and then it crashes, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. As far as where this story pops up between it being published in 1906 and the 1945 movie, Dead of Night, is in Bennett Cerf's 1944 collection titled Famous Ghost Stories. Hmm. Um, Now, I couldn't find anything about whether he was collecting other people's works or if he was just, like, writing his own. I suspect he was just writing his own. But... He uh, was a publisher. Um, he's actually one of the founders of the U.S. publishing firm Random House. Oh. So you know he was, like, he would have read it at some point. And even if he didn't mean to, he might have just, like, accidentally plagiarized the well, idea. And the other thing is if it became, like, a kind of urban legend, like, you, he could have run across it as, like, a folk ghost story, not realizing it was from a published source. Because uh, you get that a lot, like... There's a lot of, you know, a lot of those ghost story or scary story anthology books are collections of things like, oh, that I've heard, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um... Well, actually, that's the case with this. There's a 1965 book called Folk Tales of England that has this, like, room for one more oh. story inside it. Sure. So that's, like, the perfect example for what you're describing. Yeah. So that's E.F. Benson's 
bus conductor. Cool. So what about H.G. Wells's The Inexperienced Ghost? I don't know if we need to hear a lot about H.G. Wells because we've heard a lot about him before on the show. Yeah, I've talked about him in the past um, in most detail in episode 36 on Island of Lost Souls, but also again in the Invisible Man episode uh, right. number 43. But, you know, I'll, I'll cover him briefly. Sure. A reminder for anyone who forgot or has never heard of H.G. Wells somehow. I mean, that happens. Yeah. There's no shame. No shame. Herbert George Wells, known as Bertie to his family, was born in 1866 in Kent, England. He was always an avid reader and had a keen interest in writing. But as he came from a poor family, he had to work, um, such as apprenticing, throughout his life. Uh, he worked first as a draper, um, working with, like, curtains and, like, yeah. fabrics. Okay. Um, then as a chemist's assistant, and then as a teacher, and then failing at all of those, and then getting hired as a teacher again. <laughs> um, yeah, he eventually landed work teaching at Midhurst Grammar School in 1883. From there, he won a scholarship the following year, which allowed him to study biology under Thomas Henry Huxley at the Royal College of Science. While at this Royal College, he founded the Science School Journal, and this allowed him a place to kind of experiment with genre fiction writing. Into the 1890s, he supplemented his living with writing of basically all genres, from journalism to biology textbooks, novels, and short stories. His most notable works today are The Time Machine from 1895, the Island of Dr. Moreau from 1896, The Invisible Man, 1897, and War of the Worlds, 1898, all of which are novels. Yes. And all of which, and more, he published before The Inexperienced Ghost. Mm -hmm. So when he's writing The Inexperienced Ghost, by the way, its other title is The Story of the Inexperienced Ghost. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean... Getting paid by the word here. Yeah. Um... So he was pretty established as an author. Um, he had even published six short story collections by this point. Okay, so this is sort of, in terms of works of H.G. Wells that we've run into, this is a relatively later work. Sort of. Later is kind of odd to say, because it was published in 1902 in the Strand magazine, mm -hmm. and he lived till like 1946, well, right? That, so like, that's what I mean, like later relative to the works of H.G. Wells that we have run into as basises for things on the show. Yeah, okay, cool. I just wanted to make sure that people weren't getting confused with like, you know, when you say later, like it might imply like later in his life. Yeah, no, no, no. He, I mean, he was, I know he was writing things like right up until when he died, so. yeah. We know H.G. Wells most for um, his speculative fiction and the ways that he blurs sci-fi with other new innovative genre, like invasion literature with War of the Worlds. Um, even in the case of The Invisible Man, it has a very like strong basis in biology and like an understanding of science. Mm -hmm. Or even like Island of Dr. Moreau, where the character is uplifting animals like mm -hmm. there's always like a basis in science and then a step into science fiction yes so i was, I was surprised about this short story because there's none of that <laughs> yeah i mean it sounds like it's a ghost story which isn't a lot of not a lot of science there really unless you're arthur conan doyle and you think the ghosts are made of ectoplasm or whatever 
Well, speaking of Arthur Conan Doyle, um, I mentioned that The Inexperienced Ghost was published in Strand Magazine. Uh... So um, this magazine was a frequent publisher of Wells. Um, all of the Sherlock Holmes stories from Doyle. Um, Agatha Christie as well. Uh, this magazine is not known for any genre in particular. Yeah, it's just a big deal magazine. Yeah. Now, its competitor magazine is Paul Mall Magazine. Oh. And Wells would actually often write for both. Okay. So, just kind of another neat, like, linking between these two. Sure. Now, for the inexperienced ghost, I did find some summaries, but I figured, hey, I read the first one. Let's read this one. It's a short story. Sure. So, here's another original synopsis. Okay. Six friends are sitting by a fire at the Mermaid Club, which okay. is like a fancy golf club. Sure. Uh, five of these friends, including our narrator, arrived today, but their friend Clayton had stayed the night prior, where he encountered a ghost. He tells his friends about his um, in- encounter and his theory that who you are in life becomes who you are in death. Sure. So if you're, like, a go-getter in life, you'll be a go-getter in death. I don't see why not. And this ghost that he met um, was a purposeless guy who failed at everything and was failing at haunting. So he's a shitty ghost. Okay. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of humor in this story, especially in the beginning. Um, Like, when Clayton first encounters the ghost, like, begins the conversation with, like, Excuse me, ghost, are you a member? Why are you in this club? (laughs) But as the story goes on, it's clear, like, the reason the ghost is failing at haunting is he can't really seem to do it right, and he can't seem to, like, go back to ghost space. You know what I mean? Like, disappear back into ghost space. He can't, like, leave this house, not for any, like, reason. He just, like, can't remember... The, the complex hand gestures he has to do right. to go back to ghost space. This sort of sounds a lot like Beetlejuice. <laughs> like, like new ghost who sucks at scaring people. So because he can't remember these movements... These somatic components. He's, like, practicing in front of Clayton. And Clayton's like, just do it, man. You can do it. Like, just trying to, like, cheer him up. Like, buff him up a bit. Stiff upper lip, you know. That's exactly it. Um, that's exactly Clayton's approach. So finally the ghost does it and disappears before Clayton's eyes. So Clayton tells the story and they're like, come on, you expect us to believe that? And Clayton's like, no, I'll show you like what he was trying to do. And he does the hand movements. And he can't remember the last part that the ghost was having trouble with. Mm-hmm. And this is when one friend named Sanderson, who is a Freemason... Reveals the last movement. No, you need to move your hands like this. Uh Uh-huh. Now, at this point, everyone's like, yeah, come on, Clayton, do it. Like, what's going to happen? And another friend named Wish is like, nah, man, nah, like, this is going to kill you. Like, your soul's going to go into the ghost space. Like, what are you doing? Um, And Clayton's like, nah, I'll do it. And so he does the movements, does the last movement correctly, as shown by Sanderson, and he dies. His heart stops and he drops dead because his soul passed to the ghost space. Right. Yeah. That's the end. Be, you know, a, a, a cautionary tale. Yeah. So it has humor throughout it. It definitely tries to, like, set the mood and then undercut 
the kind of gothic setting of, like, the shadows, the moonlight. Right, because you're at, like, a golf club. Yeah, and then you're like, excuse me, ghost, are you a member? Right, <laughs> like, yeah, it was yeah. just fun. Um, but then it ends with, like, he's dead, oh my god. What I did find unique about this story is that, I kind of said this before, but there's no science involved. Right. Like, it's just a fun one-off short story, let's write this quick, get some quick cash to fund into my novels. Sure. Type of approach. Now, H.G. Wells died in 1946, uh, so it's very likely he would have at least known about the adaptation Dead of Night, um, if not actually getting a chance to see it. Now, the reason I say he might have known about it is, like, he knew about Orson Welles' War of the Worlds radio adaptation. Mm-hmm. They actually had um, an interview in 1940 about it. Um, so I think he would have, like, known. Yeah, and, and he knew about, like, the In- Invisible Man movie and the Island of Lost Souls movie, because we've talked about, like, what his reactions were to those things. Yeah, but I couldn't find anything about his reaction to Dead of Night. So, the frame narrative for the film, as well as the first segment, The Hearse Driver, were directed by Basil Dearden. He was born Basil Deer. And he got his start at Ealing as an assistant to Basil Dean, and thus changed his last name to avoid confusion. Makes sense. At Ealing, he typically directed comedies, but his best-known film is probably the 1950 police drama The Blue Lamp, which introduced the long-running character of police constable George Dixon. Alberto Calvacanti directed The Christmas Story and The Ventriloquist Stummy, He was born in Rio de Janeiro. He had moved to France to work as an architect and an interior designer. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. This led to work as a set designer for Marcel Lerbier, a French avant-garde filmmaker. He directed his first film in 1926. And then in 1933, he joined John Grierson's film unit uh, in Britain, uh, which was the film unit for the... General Post Office. So it was basically, it was like a government-funded, like, PSA kind of, like, film unit, right? Support the posties. Now, Grierson left the GPO for Canada to go found the National Film Board of Canada. Oh, shit, son. And invent the documentary and all that kind of stuff. Uh, So Calvacanti was put in charge of the GPO. Uh, when he was told that he would have to become a British citizen to continue in the position, he left the job, and in 1940, he joined Ealing Studios. He would leave Ealing in 1946 over a dispute about money, and spent the rest of his life as sort of an itinerant filmmaker, just going from, like, country to country, getting jobs where he could. So, the Haunted Mirror segment was directed by Robert Hammer, who got his start as an editor, working on pictures such as Alfred Hitchcock's Jamaica Inn, and he later worked as an editor at GPO. When Calvacanti moved from GPO to Ealing, Hammer followed. His best-known film as a director at Ealing is probably 1949's Kind Hearts and Coronets, which stars Dennis Price and nine instances of Alec Guinness. (laughs) It stars Alec Guinness, 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 and Alec Guinness. Correct. Hammer was gay at a time when that was illegal in the United Kingdom, and he developed an unfortunate drinking problem, which would lead to the end of his filmmaking career. 
So he has no relationship to, um, like, the Hammer horror stuff? No. No, Hammer with one M in his case. Hammer. (laughs) The Golfer's Story was directed by Charles Crichton, who also got his start as an editor, editing films like The Private Life of Henry VIII and The Thief of Baghdad. Oh. His directing career began at Ealing in 1944, and he directed many of the famous Ealing comedies. His final film was the John Cleese comedy A Fish Called Wanda in 1988. The film's screenplay was written by John Baines and Angus MacPhail, who divided the stories between the two of them. Of the original stories, MacPhail wrote The Frame Narrative and The Christmas Story, while Baines wrote The Haunted Mirror and The Ventriloquist Dummy. MacPhail later went on to write Spellbound for Alfred Hitchcock. Actor Mervyn Johns plays the protagonist of the film's framing narrative. He had gotten his start in theater in the 1920s, and is probably best known to audiences today as Bob Cratchit in the 1951 version of Scrooge with Alistair Sim. Sally Ann Howes features in The Christmas Story. She was 14 years old at the time of shooting, but she came from a theatrical family. Her father was a vaudevillian, and her mother was an actress and singer. Her grandfather was a director of theatrical musicals, and her older brother was a musician. Her uncle acted on stage, film, and television. Oh, wow. Big shoes for her to fill. Her first movie was Tuesday's Child in 1943. After that, she signed a contract at Ealing Studios, and Dead of Night was her third film. At age 18, she was put under a seven-year contract to the Rank Organization, which she left for a very successful career in musical theater in the 50s and 60s. She appeared in the 1968 film version of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and she continued her successful stage career well into old age. Today, she is 89 years old. Nice. The Golfer's Story features actors Basil Radford and Naunton Wayne, continuing a shtick they had been doing since 1938. They'd appeared together in Alfred Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes as two cricket-obsessed Englishmen named Charters and Caldecott, and their comic relief routine in that film was so popular that the two began popping up in all sorts of British movies. 1940's Night Train to Munich, 1941's Crook's Tour, 1942's Next of Kin, and 1943's Millions Like Us, all as Charters and Caldecott, all written by the same writers as The Lady Vanishes. In films not from those writers, they continue to appear as the same characters under different names. So in Dead of Night, they're Parrot and Potter, and in 1946's A Girl and a Million, they're Prendergast and Fottingham. And they are Garnet and Leslie in 1948's Quartet, Bright and Early in 1949's <laughs> It's Not Cricket. Good. Greg and Straker in 1949's Passport to Pimlico. And finally, they go unnamed in 1949's Stop Press Girl and Helter Skelter. Probably the best-known actor in the film today is Michael Redgrave, who stars in The Ventriloquist Dummy. Redgrave was born in 1908. He was the son of two actors. He began acting on stage in 1934, beginning a very long stage career as a leading man and director for which he received continuous acclaim and awards until his final onstage performance in 1975. His first major film role 
was as the lead in Alfred Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes in 1938, and he appeared in many well-known films over the decades, such as The Dam Busters, Mr. Arcaden, and The Battle of Britain. Redgrave married actress Rachel Kempson in 1935, and they had three children, Vanessa, Corin, and Lynn. All actors. Vanessa Redgrave is probably the most well-known and acclaimed with a long stage and film career. Uh, Vanessa's daughters, Natasha and Jolie Richardson, are also actresses, while her son Carlo Nero is a director, and Corin's daughter, Gemma, is also an actress. So they're like the Barrymores of, of the Britain. Britain. Yeah. Redgrave had multiple affairs throughout his life with women and with men, and one of his male lovers, Bob Mitchell, moved in next door to the Redgraves and was regarded as a beloved uncle to the children. <laughs> Michael Redgrave was knighted in 1959, and in 1976, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, and he passed away in 1985 at age 77. The film's cinematographer is the legendary Douglas Slocombe. Born in London in 1913, he initially wanted to be a photojournalist, and he photographed the rise of anti-Jewish sentiment and Nazi power in Poland in the 1930s. He was in Poland in 1939 and commissioned to shoot film footage for an American documentary called Lights Out, filming a Goebbels rally and a subsequent burning of a synagogue, for which he was arrested. Arrested for filming? Yes. He filmed the invasion of Poland by Germany at the start of World War II, and then tried to escape the country by train, but his train was gunned down by German planes. He escaped the wreckage of the train and bought a horse and cart from a Polish farmer in order to make it back to London. He became a cinematographer for the Ministry of Information, working with Alberto Calvacanti of the GPO unit, who then took him with him when he went to Ealing. Slocombe shot many classic Ealing films, such as Kind Hearts and Coronets, for which he had to develop techniques to shoot all of Alec Guinness's characters in the same frame. Over the course of his very long career, Slocombe shot such classic films as The Fearless Vampire Killers, 1967, The Lion in Winter, 1968, The Italian Job, 1969, Jesus Christ Superstar, 1973, The Great Gatsby, 1974, Rollerball, 1975, Raiders of the Lost Ark, 1981, Never Say Never Again, 1983, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, 1984, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in 1989. He was nominated for three Oscars and won three BAFTAs. He had to give up his career, however, due to deteriorating eyesight, but he lived until 2016, passing away at 103 years old. Damn. A year before, he said to an interviewer, it's a weird feeling to have outlived virtually everyone you ever worked with. Yeah, I bet. So he's the only cinematographer? Yes. So the only crew change on each segment is the director. Correct, yeah. So different director, different cast, but the same crew otherwise. Okay. The film's composer is Georges Auric, a French composer born in 1899, who began his musical career playing piano and composing music at age 12. He became a protege of composer Eric Satie, and in... Oh, Eric Satie. Yeah. Of I've been like, using a lot of his music in the Carmilla stuff. Yeah. Uh, you've been using his Nocier in the Carmilla stuff. He's probably most well-known for his, I think they're called the, like, Gymnopodies. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's like Nilpides. Maybe. Anyways. In the 1920s, Arik became one of the six, a group of avant-garde French composers who rejected uh, the musical establishment of the time. <laughs> Dope. He began writing music for poet, playwright, filmmaker Jean Cocteau uh, around this time. And in the 1930s, he began writing film music. By 1935, he had abandoned his elitist attitudes to music in favor of more populist styles. His four strategies for music composition were, one, work with leftist artists, two, reach a wider audience by writing in more genres, okay, three, write for younger audiences, four, express his political views within his music. Interesting. He was a communist. <laughs> but how do you convey that through music? Um, I'm sure if I knew more musical theory better, I would know. Sure. But, you know, he also composed operas, and it had to do a lot with, like, choosing films that he felt aligned with his views, or, like, composing the scores for those films to, like, comment on the film's events in a way that was consistent with his views. Okay. That kind of thing. Um... And then I think the idea was just, like, you're famous, so use that to, like, lift up other leftist artists to work with you. And then, you know, get your political views out to the widest audience by, like, writing popular music that people will actually listen to. Yeah, yeah. makes sense. Other films with scores by Arik include La Belle et la Bette from 1946. That makes sense. He worked with Cocteau. Orpheus from 1950. Moulin Rouge from 1952. Roman Holiday, 1953, and Notre Dame de Paris, 1956. Okay. So, in September of 1945, Rank founded Eagle Lion Films to serve as a distribution arm for his films in the United States, as British films often had difficulty gaining a foothold in the lucrative U.S. market. Eagle Lion would be run by Arthur B. Krim, and to accompany the Rank organization A-Pictures, Krim hired Brian Foy of the old Warner Brothers B-Unit to produce accompanying B-Pictures. Foy had been low on work since Warner Brothers had dissolved their B-Unit back in 1942. While the primary purpose of Eagle Lion was to release British Rank Pictures in the U.S., some pictures were released under that banner in the U.K. as well, particularly early on. Uh, Eagle Lion was founded in September of 1945, and Dead of Night was distributed by Eagle Lion as an Ealing Studios production, premiering in the UK on September 9th, 1945. The film was well-received by British critics, with Monthly Film Bulletin calling it the smoothest film yet to come from an English studio. What does that mean? It's referring to the, like, production values and quality, so, like, the idea that, like, the the you know the 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 score and the editing and the set design and the cinematography like everything looks like a a slick production uh, as if it was you know made in Hollywood or something rather than kind of a slipshod amateur hour British movie. Okay, I wasn't sure if he meant like uh, cohesive, which is also strange because it's an anthology movie. Yeah, no, I think I think the idea is just like this looks like a real movie. <laughs> <laughs> Burn. Yeah. Uh, the film was also a hit at the British box office that year. So it was a, a, an overall success. 
Meanwhile, Rank wanted more of a foothold in the U.S. than just releasing his British films there. He wanted to be making American films for the American market. And while Eagle Lion was making B pictures, Rank knew that in order to make A pictures in the U.S., it required already being part of the system, uh, rather than trying to break in as an outsider. That was a lesson he had already learned in the U.K. So, to that end, in 1946, Rank bankrolled the merger of Universal Pictures with International Pictures. Universal's parent company, the Standard Capital Corporation, was looking to sell and divest itself of the studio. International was a small independent production company that was founded by William Goetz, Louis B. Mayer's son-in-law. And Goetz was looking for a bigger footprint for his company in Hollywood. But he couldn't afford to purchase a major studio. So Rank came in to bankroll the merger. Goetz became the new head of Universal International, with Rank as majority shareholder. Thus, Rank also got exclusive rights to distribution of Universal Pictures in the UK. So on June 28, 1946, Universal International released Dead of Night in the United States. The Americans thought that the 102-minute movie was too long, and so they cut The Golfer's Story and The Haunted Mirror in order to bring the running time down to 77 minutes. This created plot holes in the frame narrative, and also probably contributed to the prominent place of the ventriloquist dummy segment in American pop culture, when many British critics preferred the two cut stories. Today, Dead of Night is available on DVD and Blu-ray from Kino Lorber, and you can stream it through the public library streaming service Canopy. And is that... Is it streaming, like, the full thing, or is it streaming the U.S. cut version? Oh, all of the home video versions are the the full movie. Okay. Um, what's streaming on Canopy is the Kino Lorber release. Oh, okay. Cool. So today, it is considered one of the most influential horror movies of all time, and many of the segments have been retold in future films, and particularly in five different episodes of the original Twilight Zone. <laughs> Well, folks, if you want to watch along, um, get Canopy. Uh, We have it through our public library, because public libraries are a great resource, and you should always support them. Mm -hmm. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Dead of Night from 1945, directed by four very talented guys and produced by Michael Balkin. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone we just finished watching dead of night from 1945 from directors alberto cavalcani charles Crichton, basil dearden and robert hamer what did you think of this ben mixed bag which is i mean generally like predictable in an anthology film setting 
Um, certainly you can see the influence on future anthology films, particularly future British anthology horror films. Yes. Um, but I did find some of it to be a bit of a letdown. Um, but there was some really good stuff in here also. Yeah, I would agree with the description of a mixed bag. Um, that's just kind of how anthology films go. Anthology anything, really. Yeah. Not everything is going to be as good as some of the others. I appreciate that you were looking ahead in terms of what this influences. I was looking behind in terms of what has influenced this. Sure. Because there is a lot of German Expressionist influence here, and it is gorgeous. Yeah, the one nice thing about any kind of anthology, whether it's an anthology film like this or a short story anthology or what have you, is usually the individual pieces are short enough that if you hit a bad one, it's going to be over soon. Yeah. So we talked about like some of the short stories that were adapted into this, but um, in both of those cases, I think the stories were pretty altered, um, one more so than the other, yeah. and there's a lot of original content in here, so let's, let's talk about what's going on in Dead of Night. For sure. So, uh, as the film opens, we follow architect Walter Craig driving up to a country house. Uh, he's been called to come discuss renovations of this cottage with the owner, Elliot Foley. Also at the house are the following guests, Dr. Van Stratton, Sally O'Hara, Mrs. Folly, Joan Cortland, and Hugh and later Joyce Granger. At the cottage, everything seems really familiar to Craig, and he realizes that the cottage and the other guests are familiar because they've been in a reoccurring dream of his. And he shares this with the crowd. Uh, He's able to tell when another guest, Joyce, arrives. He's able to tell when Sally is going to be forced to leave by her mother. Um, And he's even able to tell when the power is going to go out. Dr. Van Straten is a German psychologist, and he thinks that this dream kind of thing that Craig is describing and all supernatural phenomenon can be explained. So each guest decides to share a supernatural experience they've either encountered themselves or heard from a friend of a friend of theirs in order to convince the doctor that it's a possibility that Craig's dream is real. Right, that his dream is a form of, like, clairvoyance or premonition. Exactly. So the first story we hear is from Hugh Granger. He is a race car driver in the kind of flashback, in the segment. Yeah, the flat. it's a flashback. We said that he is involved in a pretty drastic crash. We see some actual footage, and he is in the hospital recovering from the crash. He falls in love with Nurse Joyce, and during his recovery, they specifically say that he has no head trauma. And one night, he hears something kind of strange outside. And when he looks outside at night, he sees this hearse carriage being drawn by horses, and the strange-looking man driving it. And he says, just room for one inside, sir. So he's kind of shaken by this. There's also some things with um, the clock showing like it being quarter after four, um, despite just five minutes before the clock saying it was nearly 11 p.m., uh, things like that. That's also from the short story. I just skipped over it when I was talking about it. Sure. Hugh shares this experience with his doctor, and the doctor's like, don't worry about it. It probably was just a dream. It's fine. So 
Later, Hugh is discharged from the hospital. He's all better, and he's about to hop onto a bus to get wherever he's going. And um, he's taken aback when the bus conductor looks exactly like the hearse driver from that nightmare dream or supernatural experience, whatever. This takes him aback, and he doesn't go onto the bus. The bus conductor's like, yeah, okay. And so they head on. He does, the bus conductor also says, just room for one inside, sir. Yes, that too. Uh, and then the bus <laughs> uh, swerp, like he's driving. Um, another driver, like, blows a stop sign or something, and the bus swerves and careens off a bridge. Yep. But we cut away before we see anything. And just a little comical. Uh, and Hugh, back into the framing narrative part of the story, says, you know, if I hadn't had that hearse driver premonition, I would have been on that bus and I would not be here today. Right. And I would not have married Joyce, my nurse, who, oh look, she's arrived. Mm -hmm. Now the doctor kind of hand waves this away, or it was head trauma, you were scared of motor vehicles, whatever. Um, Next, we get a story from Sally. Um, And this is the Christmas story. She is at this big party at this big house with like 50 kids. Like, it's a ridiculous amount of kids. Um, And she is playing hide-and-seek with them. Yeah, it's like a big, like, estate house for, like, you know, it's whatever, like, the county seat. And it's like they've invited all the children who live in the county, basically, to, like, come and play for Christmas kind of deal. So during the party, um, this other kid, this boy, um, starts to tell her about the house being haunted because there was a murder of a kid by his sister. But he doesn't get to finish the story before they continue playing hide-and-seek. Sally goes and hides up in the attic, and she discovers a hidden room. Following kind of this corridor and into the room, um, she hears this little boy named Francis Kent crying. She talks to him, and he explains, you know, I'm scared of my sister. Um, but she comforts him, puts him to bed, and then comes back downstairs to the party. She mentions to her hostess that, um, oh, by the way, Francis has gone to bed. Mm-hmm. And she's like, who? Fr- Francis Kent, he's staying the night with his sister? And the hostess is like, oh dear, that Francis Kent is the kid who was murdered by his sister. And, and The end. The end, it's spooky. <laughs> the third story we get is from Joan, and it's the Haunted Mirror segment. So in her story, um, she got her fiancé, Peter, this antique mirror, which is like this like ridiculous-looking antique mirror. I love it. I would absolutely love to have this in our house, by the way. Um, Haunting and all, I'm sure. <laughs> absolutely. Well, now you now you spoiled the story for the audience, Ben. You said the name of the story was The Haunted Mirror. <laughs> so Joan gets her fiancé an antique mirror for his birthday, and after a couple days, he begins to act a little strangely. You see... When he looks in the mirror, he sometimes sees another room with some other, like, antique furniture and him standing inside it, and he almost feels like he's going to be stuck inside this mirror. She tries to convince him it's nothing, and you're just imagining it, but don't worry, you're not mad or anything, you're as sane as me, but trust me, it's fine. And she helps him get over this illusion, basically. After they get married, everything seems to be fine, and she leaves for a weekend with her mom. Uh, she stops in at the antique store that she actually bought the mirror from, because as she's walking by, she sees some of the antique furniture that Peter had described as being in the mirror. 
When she asks the shopkeeper about the furniture in the mirror, he explains that all of it had actually been locked away for years and years. It's a tragic story, really. The owner was this happy and rich and married guy with this beautiful wife. He has, like, a title and stuff. But suddenly, all of that went away when this guy was injured and he became a paraplegic after a horse accident. He was confined to bed in his room with this mirror. He became quite obsessed with the mirror and he was convinced that his wife was cheating on him. So this man actually strangled his wife and then committed suicide in front of the mirror. And then the next owner of the mirror was Joan's husband. Mm-hmm. So Joan, now thoroughly spooked, is like, okay, so clearly it's not something wrong with Peter. It actually is something with the mirror. Um, I have to rush home and get rid of this mirror and help him. So she races home. And when she arrives, Peter is actually possessed. Yes. Um, he accuses her of cheating and tries to strangle her, reenacting the story we've just heard. During the struggle, she bashes a candlestick into the mirror, and at that point, her husband returns to normal. And then they throw that mirror in the trash. Well, they tear it apart. They don't just, like, leave it on the alley, in the alleyway for someone to pick, pick up and take home and... You know, it's not bed bugs; it's a sure. ghost. Yeah. Now, this is Joan's story. She was the wife in that story, and everyone's like, "Whoa, that's that's heavy." And at this point, Craig is like, "Yeah, no, like I can feel like I'm going to be doing something horrible. Like there's something horrible is lurking in the future for me here. I need to get out." Uh, and Foley kind of catches him, and he's like, "No, like." Not in, like, a mysterious or, like, strange way, but he's like, no, dude, like, just just breathe, it's fine. Let me tell you a ghost story I know that a friend of a friend of mine had, and this will, like, calm you down. Let you know that, like, you don't need to be scared. We're all having fun here. Yeah. So Foley's story is the golfer's story, and features two friends, George Parrott and Larry Potter, who are rivals in golf and in love. Right. But 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 good friends the rest of the time. Yeah. They were both in love with a girl named Mary. Um, and instead of deciding, like, hmm, design for living has come out, so we know <laughs> what, what polyamory kind of looks like. Why don't we just do that? Instead, they're like, ah, we shall have a round of golf, and whoever wins gets to marry Mary. What's What's really funny about this is, like, Mary also seems to think this is a good idea. Like, her reaction to them saying this is like, why didn't we think of that before? <laughs> so they're playing um, at this country club that they are both members at, and presumably where they met Mary at, actually, and they are at the last hole. Parrot says he's only at uh, two strokes for this hole, which is a lie, and Potter does seem very suspicious, but he's like, well, okay, um... Now, this lie is what leads Parrot to actually win. In response, Potter goes, damn, and walks into the lake. Yeah, like he's the Terminator, only he's not. He's a man who needs to breathe. And everyone just stands <laughs> around watching as he walks into the lake and kills himself in front of them. Yeah. So Parrot and Mary are engaged, and um, Parrot goes to play a round of golf with Foley. Mm-hmm. And it's at this point when the haunting begins. Uh, Potter is hunting Parrot. And we get some, like, comic relief type stuff of, like, 
you know, a, an invisible force moving the golf ball around and, and stuff. And it's all played for laughs. Potter, appearing to Parrot later, says that he will stop if he leaves Mary. Because, you know, you're a cheat. You mm-hmm. can't be marrying Mary. And Parrot's like, yeah, no, you're right. I, I, I don't want to be like a dick. And Potter's like, and you'll also give up golf. And Parrot's like, fuck no! Yeah. Right? No! Never! And Potter's like, you're right, you're right. That's too far. Just leave Mary. Yeah, it's, I mean, the entire segment is sort of a joke at the expense of people who like golf a little too much. Yes. Um, and I understand why we're getting this segment after the very dark segment of The Haunted Mirror. Yeah. Um, so, Parrot and Potter have an agreement. Potter will leave Parrot alone, and Parrot will leave Mary. Except Potter tries to vanish, but he can't remember how, gosh darn it. Yeah. So, Parrot is stuck with Potter. Um, because he won't leave, Parrot decides to stay and marry Mary. That's fine, we get some comical stuff. But now it's the wedding night. Yeah, and Mary wants to fuck. Yeah, she is quite clear. And Parrot, who looks like he could be her father, is like, yeah, okay, uh, Potter, go away. Please go away, Potter. I don't want you watching me fuck. Yeah, I guess, like, the rule is that if you're haunting someone, you have to stay within six feet of them. Yeah. Like some sort of weird reverse restraining order. <laughs> Potter is exasperatedly trying to do the hand motions, whatever that he has to do to vanish, and he's just failing consistently. So Parrot, fed up, tries to do them to kind of help. Slash is also, like, also exasperated. And he vanishes himself. And Potter decides that, well, Parrot's gone. Guess I'll make a pass at Mary. Yeah, she's DTF. You're a ghost guy. Like, I know... Is he still a ghost, though? Or did, like, somehow he switch places? Like, because... Eh, it doesn't... A, it's a dumb comedy story. Yes, and that's that's the end of that. Um, it's like, thank God, finally. So then the fifth story we get is actually from Dr. Van Stratton. He's like, you've all shared these supernatural stories. Well, let me share something with you and show that not all things are supernatural. Right. But he does sort of say, like, this is the one time in my life where I kind of wondered, but... Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Van Stratton, in his story, goes to meet Maxwell Frere to determine if he's mad. Frere has been arrested and charged with attempted murder. The victim, slash plaintiff... Mm -hmm is Sylvester Key. And as the doctor reads Key's statement, we see what happens. Yeah, it's a flashback within a flashback. Yeah. Maxwell Frere is a ventriloquist with his dummy doll, Hugo. And he has actually a very popular act. Sylvester Key is another ventriloquist, and he's wandering by, um, wants to see the act as well, you know, fellow professional. And he goes to attend the act, but Hugo singles him out. And is saying things like, I should be working with you, etc. Like, you know, the typical, like, ventriloquist dummy thing where, like, the dummy says all the zingers and is, like, making fun of people and of the host. Yeah, it's 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 the thing where it's insult comedy. Yeah, there right? that, that That you do when you have a ventriloquist dummy because the joke is kind of like, oh, you can get away with saying it because it's not really you saying it, it's the dummy. Exactly. Only it's not really him saying it. Or is it? Oh my god. Well, that's a story. Yeah. Frere is, like, upset by all of this. At one point, he actually slaps the dummy, and the audience is like, uh, okay. 
But Higo invites Key to the dressing room after his segment on stage. And it's at this moment where Key is definitely sure that Frere isn't well in the head. Um, because Frere, the way he talks about Hugo is if he's real, like, you don't want to do what he says, that type of thing. Like, like, Key is like, yeah, but I can't take your dummy from, this is your act, I would never steal an act. And Frere's like, yeah, you could never steal my act, because it's not an act. Hugo's real. Like, that's basically what he's saying. And it's like, Hugo the dummy keeps saying, like, yeah, I want to join up with you, Sylvester, take me away from here. And Frere keeps being like, no, you can't have him. He's mine. But like, he's like, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's fine, man. I didn't mean anything. Um, a few months later, Key runs into Frere and Hugo at a bar. Frere is drunk. Some people come in and go up to start interacting with Hugo, because he's that famous, and the puppet insults them, leading to Frere getting punched out. Key helps Frere up and back to Frere's hotel room. And Frere is again acting like Hugo makes him do the acts, makes him do things like canceling acts, suddenly things like that. Key puts Frere to bed and leaves Hugo on the bed and then goes to his own hotel room. He's awakened in the night by Frere pounding on the door looking for Hugo and accuses Key of stealing him. When Hugo is actually found in Key's room, Frere shoots him. Twice. Mm-hmm. Back to Dr. Van Stratton, he believes that giving Hugo to Frere will help him understand what Frere's problem is. Yeah. Um, Frere and Hugo argue, and um, Hugo kind of mocks him, saying, Frere's going to go to jail, and I'll get to go perform with Key. You're, you're easy to replace, whatever. Um, in response, Frere smothers the dummy... And then kicks his face in, Mm -hmm. and the doctor is unable to stop him. He's not fast enough. A little bit later, Key has recovered, and Frere's doctors want to try introducing him to Frere again to try to help Frere, you know, jolt him back to reality. Yeah, he seems to have become catatonic since murdering his doll? Yeah. But when Key tries to talk to Frere, Frere is acting like he's the dummy, uh, he turns his head like a dummy does and moves his mouth like a dummy does, um, but only gurgles come out. Mm-hmm. Back to the framing narrative, Dr. Van Stratton is like, now you folks would believe that the dummy was real. And they're like, yeah, that's how he got into Key's room. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, it was Frere having two personalities, Hugo and himself, and he put the doll there. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, not everything is supernatural. But as the power goes out, and Craig's premonition comes true again, the doctor's willing to sit down with and work with Craig. You know, okay, clearly something's going on here. Let's actually talk about this. So everyone leaves the room, and Craig begins to talk to the doctor, explaining that the dream is always like this, all these same beats, um, and he can't really see what's going to happen next until it happens. And he has this urge, this this irresistible urge to just kill a helpless man like the doctor! Strangle, strangle, strangle. Mm-hmm. Um, so he strangles and kills Dr. Stratton. Then we get this strange nightmare montage sequence of Craig. He goes to try to hide, and then it's like he enters the hide-and-seek part of Sally's story. And then he 
is later in the jail where um, Frere was being held, and the jailer is the bus conductor saying, just room for one more inside, sir. And it's just kind <laughs> inside of, this cell. Yeah, and just kind of mixing everything in. And at the end, um, the dummy, Hugo, is back, like his face isn't smashed in. And then we get another shot of him standing up and walking towards Craig and strangling Craig. And then he wakes up. Yeah. It was all a dream. And he's actually woken up because of a call from Foley, inviting him over for a consultation on renovations for his cottage. As the credits roll, we see the beginning sequence again as Craig arrives at the cottage. The end. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, this film slash films has some varying quality. You can kind of tell from my plot synopsis which ones we really enjoyed and which ones we did not. I think I can safely say that Ben and I were both not super happy with the golfer's story. Mm. Like, I enjoyed the comedy bit, but, like, even in terms of an adaptation of the inexperienced ghost, it's not really much of an adaptation. Well, let's, let's... I think the easiest way to go through this is going to be to kind of go through what our thoughts were on each story as we go, um, so that we can address kind of what you thought, what I thought of each one, because uh, otherwise we're just going to be, I think, way all over the place on, on this. Fair enough. I do think that if there's a comment that can be provided for the entire movie as a whole, uh, it's that it has very good, moody cinematography. Absolutely. Um, I also think that there are generally good performances all around, uh, but Michael Redgrave, who plays Maxwell Frere, is the clear standout. Uh, he puts in a very good performance that is is like a, a whole, like... Other level. Yeah, from the rest of the cast, who are mostly yes. just, like, standard British-level actor competent, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so do you do we start with the framing narrative, or do we end with the framing narrative? Let's, let's talk about the framing narrative last. Okay. Um, so I found a lot of the segments to be disappointing, uh, starting with... The hearse driver. Okay, why did you find it disappointing? So it wasn't bad per se, but it is a very good example of how something can be perfectly chilling on the page and then kind of come across as eh on the screen. Like, the actual story is like a really good little, like, chilling, like, ooh, kind of, you know, story. But something about seeing it on screen just kind of made it seem, like, a little ridiculous and also, like, oh. Okay, so what? I don't know. It just kind of landed with a to me. <laughs> like it, it's it's fine, but it's not. It's it's one of those things where like you can have a very slight story in print that you know works in print because you can draw it out with the prose and build an atmosphere and a mood and all that. But in film, it really drives home how like not really anything happens in that story. He sees a hearse driver out his window at night. And then he sees the same guy as a bus driver the next day and doesn't get off on the bus. And then the bus crashes. That's, that's the whole thing. I mean, they were doing things in terms of film technique to really try to underline some of the tension. Mm-hmm. Like when he hears the clip-clop of the horse, uh, when he sees the bus conductor on the hearse, things like that. There were some Dutch angles when the bus uh, first rolled up. Mm-hmm. That might have just been to like get the angle of the bus conductor in when he's on the bus, you know what I mean? But um, I wasn't disappointed, but it was kind of like, 
oh, okay. It was a little bit of a weak start. Yeah. That being said, I think, like, it makes sense to have the chilling one up first, because you're trying to start to set the mood. Yeah, right. and also having a short one up first, right? Yeah, it, I think that was one of the shorter ones. I think they got generally longer as they went. Yeah, which makes sense. Um, because you're kind of easing in and getting more invested into mm-hmm. the stories. Um, I think it was a fine one to start. Okay. Yeah. The acting in it, I found a little rigid. I wanted... I don't know what I wanted. It, there was just something about the way that... Anthony Baird was portraying Hugh, where it was like, oh, now I will be scared at what I'm seeing. I'm mm-hmm. looking around, I see something, now I'm scared of it. Yeah. I just, I wanted something a little bit more. Now, that being said, there were moments where, like, there was something clearly with, like, I feel like the directing or the pacing that also felt stuttered. The bus conductor himself, each time he says the catchphrase... The two times in the story and the other time in the nightmare sequence at the end, the camera, like, zooms right in on his face, and he's just like, you know, uh, just room for one inside, sir. And it's, like, so heavily underlined <laughs> that it just, instead of instead of scaring you, it just kind of makes you laugh every time it happens. Yeah, that is fair. I did laugh yeah. every time. Because um... it's not said, like, in a kind of eerie way where it's just like, you know... Um, just room for one inside, sir. It's much more like, just room for one inside, sir! Like, it's very in your face. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, it was fine. What did you think of the next one, the Christmas story? So, it's... It's a perfectly chilly little ghost story. I think it was really well directed, really good cinematography. Yes. Um, all of it really worked, except for me... For poor Sally Ann Hose. Oh, you didn't like her acting? Uh, it was fine, but then at the end, when she has to come to the realization of what, of I was interacting with a ghost, she's like, oh, well, I'm not scared. No, I am scared. Please hold me. Yeah, like, it's very, she no-sells it. Um, she what? She no-sells it. She, she can't really quite give what the script is asking for in that moment. But I think the larger problem for me with that story is that overall that payoff is far too weak for a film. The story's like a nice little polite, chilly ghost story, but it's far too polite and far too tepid. It feels very safe. Like one of those things where like we don't want to upset anyone. I imagine a bunch of like middle-aged British noble women sitting around like a, a game of bridge and being like, yes, and then it turns out the little boy she was talking to was a ghost. And everyone going, oh my, you know? And it's like, yeah, okay, but w- so what? Like, on film, there needs to be something more going on. Like, I think for it to be really scary, after Sally realized who the boy was, she should have, like, rushed back upstairs to, like, be like, no, like, he really was there. And then, like, walked in on his sister murdering him. Oh, like, shit. Like, that yeah. would have been an ending. What we have there is just her being like, no, so there's this boy, Francis, upstairs. And the mom being like, oh, no, that's, honey, that's the boy who got murdered. And her being like, oh, that's freaky. Huh. And the mom being like, it's all right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. It, 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 it's, it's fine, but the ending is, is a wet turd. Jeez Louise. Alright, so we're two for two, not good. 
a wet turd, according to Ben. Um, all right, what did you think of the haunted mirror? So I think the haunted mirror has the right idea. Yeah. Um, the best thing it does is it presents a very like loving newlywed couple who is clearly like a team and like knows how the other operates and like is able to respond to each other really like well, so that there's an ample contrast at the end when Peter's possessed and he's all suspicious and paranoid and hateful, right? Like, it's a very common trope, unfortunately, for people to just automatically write married couples as kind of like bickering all the time. It's like this standby thing that people think is like amusing or funny or whatever. Yeah. But if they had been presented like that at the start, it would have made the ending really not feel... Like, oh, something's wrong with Peter. It would just be like, oh, yeah, he's an asshole. Um, So I think that was a really good choice. It felt like the crew, or whoever was behind the camera, was having a really hard time of selling that this was spooky. That when you look in a mirror and it's not the room you're in, that something spooky was going on. It felt like they had to really rely on dialogue in order for it to get across both with Peter explaining how he felt and having the camera just stay on his face and zoom Mm -hmm. in slowly as he's describing how he feels like he's going to get sucked into the mirror. Mm -hmm. And the other example is when Joan is being told the, basically, origin story of Mm -hmm. the mirror by the shopkeeper, and we don't get, like, a flashback. Right. Like, we see the shopkeeper telling Mary, sitting down, that, yeah, that portrait there, so we see, like, the guy. That's the guy... Here's his story, and we just stay focused on them, and sometimes we cut to Mary's reaction shots. The other thing is they're relying a lot on um, the musical score. Yes. Because every time, basically how the mirror stuff is shot, to give you an idea of what Sarah's describing, is we'll see a shot, I guess from the mirror's point of view, looking at Peter, and he'll be standing in his normal room and like looking at the mirror in terror. And then we'll cut to the reverse shot and see Peter in the mirror, but standing in this old-timey room, right? And him, like, looking like, oh! And, like, sometimes he looks in the mirror with Joan with him, and she's not there, and ooh. And I think one of the reasons why it doesn't work as well as it should is that it takes sort of too long for the story to get where it's going, uh, to, to tell you, like, here's the deal with the mirror, and here's what's happening. And you know, until the ending with that final scene with him and Joan, which is quite effective, there's kind of nowhere for it to go. Like, it's just kind of laying there flatly. (laughs) Like a mirror. Right. What should have happened, what would have been more effective, I think, is if the first time he looked in the mirror, he just saw part of the old room, like one antique chair. And you're like, oh, wait, what? And then he turns around and there's no antique chair there. And it's like, huh, that was weird. You know, and then the next time oh, now there's this weird bed, and the next time there's something more and more. And it should have been the scene of the room after the guy kills his wife and commits suicide. Or by the final scene where he's possessed and we see him looking in the mirror again, we should have been seeing the guy. Yeah. Like, we should have, he should look in the mirror and see himself as the guy. That's what really should have been. Like, there should have been an amping up of what's in the mirror each time. Instead, the mirror's the same. It's just him looking like he does in the old room. And unfortunately, you can't just keep repeating that and expecting it to, 
like maintain its level of horror all the way through. Yeah, even with the picture of Dorian Gray, we get a series of the painting getting worse and worse. Exactly. You can't just be, like, flat line and then suddenly, like, way up here, right? You need to build that over time. Yeah. But otherwise, I felt the acting was really good. I think Peter really carried it. Joan really carried it, especially when she's being told the story. Like, I believed her reactions. And, you know, this one at least has an ending, that it gets to, yeah, you know, that actually hits. And it, it helps that we don't know if Peter survives, because we only see Joan telling the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't have the thing of, like, well, I know Sally's going to be okay. She's telling the story. Right. What did you think of the golfer's story? So, I mean, the golfer's story is just meant as, like, some comic relief to kind of give us, like, a, a deep breath before the plunge into the ventriloquist dummy. It's a bit too bizarre for and my liking. Yeah. The changes made to the H.G. Uh, Wells story in order to fit it to this pre-existing comedy team of Radford and Wayne do not improve it. No. I would say that it ac- actively works against it. Yeah. The original Wells story was comedic. Um, but it ramped up the tension. And the ending still manages to be chilling because it's this, like thing where this guy accidentally kills himself trying to repeat part of his ghost story or whatever, right? And in this adaptation, he doesn't kill himself in the same way. He just vanishes. And the ending is nothing. Like, the ending is just like, he vanishes. The ghost is like, huh, weird. Well, off to fuck his wife. Like, it just kind of sits there kind of flatly. Yeah. Fun fact, at the country club, the young boy who's like the bartender there... Uh, he is played by a young Peter Jones, who... Would... <laughs> I love that his name is Peter and Joan, who were the last two characters. So Peter Jones went on to be, like, a pretty famous British actor and comedian in the 50s and 60s, but to a sort of modern audience, he's probably best known for, in the 1970s, being the original voice of the narrator, or the book, in the radio series version of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh. Uh, a role that he reprised in the 1980s television version as well. That's neat. Yeah. Neat fun fact. Yeah, so I wasn't very impressed with Golfer's story either. Um, you can do comedy, but still have, like, the lighting and everything be spooky. Mm. They didn't really do any of that here. Well, and I think a big problem, too, is that, like, Nothing about it feels like it's taking place in... The same universe. In, 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 a, in a normal universe of any kind, right? It's taking place on the, like, cover of a greeting card. Like, it's, it's just wacky, right? Like, from the start, the premise is wacky because it's this, like, oh, yeah, we don't know what to do with the girl, so we'll have a golf game. And she's like, yep, that seems reasonable. Like, it's already these are cartoon characters. And then, like, Buddy kills himself just walking into a lake while everyone just sits on and watches like no one would fucking do in reality. And it's such a tone shift. Right, yeah. Because he's like, you cheated. And he's like, nope, I won. He's like, okay. And then walks in. Yeah, walks into the lake and dies. And then it comedic. Right, it immediately cuts to a bunch of funny other, like, antics and stuff. Like, it's... It's the tone is all over the place, and and just, yeah, it's a cartoon, right? Like, it's a cartoon, and it goes a little bit too far into that, and ends up really, like, just feeling really out of place. Yeah. We've kind of been ramping up to it, but the ventriloquist dummy story is probably one of the best 
here. Yeah, it's it's undoubtedly the best segment. I think this entire idea that the only reason it's memorable is because Haunted Mirror and Christmas Story were cut in the American version is pure contrarian hogwash. Uh, <laughs> Those are the same people who are like, Spanish Dracula's better than regular Yeah, Dracula. exactly. Like, for one thing, it's the final story in the movie, which is usually where you want to put your best one. Yeah. Um, it gets the most screen time, it has the best acting, it has the best cinematography, it's the one that in the nightmare sequence that kind of, like, reprises all the stories gets, um, like, the the biggest repetition. Yeah, I mean, part of that is because we just watched it, so it's, like, fresh in the audience's mind. When I was talking about how this film was clearly inspired by German Expressionism, mm-hmm. you see it most clearly in The Ventriloquist Dummy, you also see it in Christmas Story. Yes. But Christmas Story felt like Luton. Like Christmas yeah. Story had a Val Luton <laughs> feel to it. Yeah, for sure. Um, but it was really the ventriloquist dummy with the way that things were framed, the way it had depth of focus mm-hmm. on certain things and like there's this one shot where um Keys is walking up steps and through the skylight in the ceiling you see the like clubs uh like rick's cafe lighting outside it's not rick's cafe yeah the like neon sign yeah there we go that's those are the words um and he's like walking yeah yeah it's just it's very very well done yeah and like the use of light and shadow around the dummy and you know with like what's happening at night after people turn out the lights and so on and the reason i'm pointing to german expressionism rather than just noir which by this point has like undoubtedly been an influence mm-hmm. in its own right is because of the priority of psychology in the film right. it, or the segment I mean yeah I think I think everything works in ventriloquist's dummy amusingly to me giving the frame narrative sort of incessant supernatural versus skeptic theming this is the only one where it believably could be one or the other yeah. Like, all the rest are obviously supernatural. Like, dude foresaw his own death in a weird dream, and this chick saw a ghost at a Christmas party, and, you know, her husband's mirror was fucking haunted, and this guy's disappearing and reappearing, like, this and making <laughs> a golf ball move around strange. Like, this is all supernatural stuff. Ventriloquist dummy, it's like, okay, how did Hugo get into the other room? Is Hugo really you know, alive? Does he have a mind of its own? But there's also the way that Redgrave plays Maxwell, which is he definitely plays him as being unhinged. Now, to be fair, if my ventriloquist dummy could talk by itself, I would be unhinged. Yes. But there's a lot of, like, little details, like the fact that um, Redgrave is always careful when Hugo is talking to be holding his mouth slightly open and kind of slightly moving his eyes and slightly moving his lips in time with what Hugo is saying. Because if you watch a ventriloquist, that's how they work. Their their lips are slightly open. They are slightly moving. It usually looks kind of like they're... Like um, breathing through their mouth. Right. Or like how people look when they're sort of slightly saying the words out loud when they read, like just the lips fluttering ever so slightly. And the trick is that the dummy attracts your attention. You're looking at the dummy when the ventriloquist is speaking, right? But he does that all the way through, as if he is the one speaking for Hugo, right? Yeah. It became so real by the end that when he's smothering Hugo... Yeah. And, like, the sounds he 
Ferrer is making for Hugo <laughs> sounds so real yeah, that I was like, what is happening? What? Yeah, what? That, that scene definitely pushes it because Hugo is screaming while Frere is smothering him. And he's not screaming like, ah! He's screaming like, right? Yeah. And it's, and it's so like your mind just buys into the, like, definitely by the end of the segment, you have on some level kind of bought into the idea that Hugo is real. I think somehow that's like an easy idea for people to buy into. Uh, maybe because our generation grew up with Toy Story. Who knows? But like, <laughs> the other thing is like, you know, I just gave a bunch of points for why I think what's really going on in that segment is that Maxwell has um, multiple personality disorder, right? But if you wanted a point for why maybe Hugo is real, it's like, how do you imitate the sound of, like... Asphyxiation? And, like, a pillow in front of your face, right? Like, how do you make... Ah! Sound like... Without having something in front of your mouth, right? Yeah. And then um, there were a couple of moments, a couple of visuals that really stick out to my mind with regards to Hugo and Frere, and yeah. that's, um, early on, um, Frere is, like, holding Hugo's mouth shut. Yes. And Hugo bites him, and yes. he pulls his hand away, and he has, like, a little bite mark that has drawn blood. Mm-hmm. Um, the other moment is when he's catatonic and then reacts to Keys coming into the room, and, like, the way he's moving his mouth was just, like... Mouths don't move like that. Yeah, yeah, the way that he responds to Key as uh, Hugo, but like Hugo's face is all kicked in so he can't talk. Yeah. Right? There is a scene early on, the first time that Keys goes to their dressing room, where Hugo's like sitting on a chair and Frere is like looking in his like dressing room mirror and kind of talking to Keys, and Hugo's head does move to look at keys and it doesn't seem like it could be in a way that Maxwell could have moved it. But once Maxwell's arrested um, and thrown in jail and he's asking like, I need to get Hugo back. I'm not going to talk to you till you get me Hugo back. Redgrave does a really neat thing with his acting where he's constantly holding his right hand up and twitching his fingers the way that you would to operate the doll's mouth from the inside. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that as was... if he has, like, this muscle memory of having the doll that he can't break out of. Yeah. All right, so on to the framing narrative. Now, for me, I really liked it. Yes, the framing I... narrative's dope. Yeah, I really liked how it starts slowly in the beginning. Kind of some things are off. Mm-hmm. And then it gets darker and darker, and then when Craig is murdering the doctor, we get, like, a close-up of Craig's face, and then we get a close-up of the doctor's face, but upside down, and um, even the the nightmare montage oh, yeah, that's is fantastic. really spooky. Like, there were points where I was, like, laughing, but it was kind of like a, I'm... I, I'm very uncomfortable. I will laugh now. Like, it was because I was so, like, unnerved. Yeah, that nightmare sequence really pushes kind of forward the techniques we've seen used for horror, right? Like, it, it really... It felt very modern. It felt very modern. It's using a lot of sort of avant-garde stuff that, like, would feel more in place in a movie from, like, the 60s. Yes. To me. Absolutely. Um, it lifts the whole film's average up immensely. Um, and I, I just 
because I love this kind of stuff, I absolutely love the ending, seeing the exact footage from the start of the movie again playing under the uh, ending credits. Like, I also you, enjoyed that, yeah. Because you, you get the idea when he wakes up screaming and it was all a dream and then he gets the phone call from Foley, like, you're like, oh, shit, this is the dream, like, it's a never-ending cycle. Well, you get the, uh, oh, he had the dream and now he's going to do it. And then when you see the footage again, it's like, maybe this is just his life. Well, yeah, because when we're in the majority of the movie, Craig's belief is, I have had this dream, now I'm living it for real. Yeah. Right? But then that turns out to be a dream. But then he's living it. Right? And, like, it's funny to think about, like, he's having this dream that then has, like, flashbacks in it, which also then sometimes have flashbacks within them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then that's all recursive within the fact that the dream continually becomes his life, which then becomes a dream. It's It's great. Yeah. So in terms of, like... The order of the stories that I found most effective. Okay, so we're, me, we're ranking the movie within the movie? I might as well. Um, I would put Framing, the Ventriloquist story, the Haunted Mirror, um, and then the Hearse and Christmas story at the same point, so it ranked four, and then Golfer's story at the bottom. Yeah, I'm more or less the same. I would put Ventriloquist Dummy at the top because I think it can stand on its own. Uh, outside of the rest of the movie really well. That's right. Uh, and then I would say the framing narrative, and then Haunted Mirror, Christmas Story, Hearst Driver, and then Golfer's Story. And I think the MVP in terms of directors here is Alberto Cavalcanti. Yes. He did Christmas Story and Ventriloquist Dummy. And then runner-up, basically, is Basil Dearden, who did the Hearst Driver and the framing narrative. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, Cavalcanti's segments use cinematography the most effectively. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, which is surprising because the cinematographer was the same across all of it. So clearly it was like either there was a lot more teamwork or collaboration going on between Cavalcanti and uh, the cinematographer. Or like the other guys, they were just so... like Because here's the thing to remember. The intent of this movie from the studio's point of view, was to showcase the talent they have. Right. So I understand why Charles Crichton, who does comedy, would rank lowest in a horror movie, mm -hmm. right? Because his stuff was comedic. Mm -hmm. Now, there's ways to kind of play with it, like we saw with Murders in the Zoo, but I feel like there were certain points where, like, it would lead to a kind of natural, like, butting of heads between... Like, a cinematographer who's trying to do horror and a director who's not really familiar with horror or perhaps even interested in horror wanting to be like, no, this is supposed to showcase me, so draw back on the horror and let me put my best foot forward. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the cinematographer's going to do what the director tells them to do. Yes, that's the, the order of things mm -hmm. um, on a set. So do you want to rank this? Yeah, for sure. So I've got a pretty narrow range on this for me, Sarah. Oh, mine's a range of about ten. Mine's like five. Okay, so maybe I should go first. All right, let's hear it. I had a hard time ranking this movie, which makes sense because it's an anthology movie. So I thought, well, let's compare it to the other anthology movie that's on the list, which is Unheimlicher Geschichten, ranked at 53. And I was like, this is better than that. Yeah. And as I looked above that, 
I kept going up because I'm like, yeah, I feel like it's better than Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's better than the 41 Jekyll and Hyde. So as I was going up, I kind of settled in a range between The Uninvited and number 28, um, mainly because both took ghosts to be real. (laughs) Okay. So that's my floor. Up from there, I went to number 18, The Return of the Vampire, um, because they were both very British. Wow. You're way higher than me. Your floor is 10 above my ceiling. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, once I hear your range, I can kind of talk more about, like, why I was feeling the uninvited sure. in particular. Yeah. So where were you looking? So I did the same thing you did. I started at Unheimliche Geschichten from 1919, uh, ranked at 53. I had the same conclusion you did, which is this is much better, and I started working my way up. Uh, and I made my way to number 42, El Fantasma del Convento. Sure. Because ultimately... This movie's really uneven, right? Like, sometimes it feels like it really wants to scare you, especially towards the end. But a lot of the stuff towards the beginning feels like it's really holding back and trying hard not to scare you and to, like, play it easy. Um, You know, and being comedic and very British, and it's kind of like, oh, it would be improper to frighten someone, you know. Whereas El Fantasma del Convento is like, here's a mummy! (laughs) And, like, these people are all dead! And is, like, very... Very scary uh, to me. So that was kind of my floor. I thought that, you know, maybe that's better than this. So my floor would be under El Fantasma del Convento at number 43. Continuing to explore upwards, you know, I saw Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and was like, and I made it to House of Frankenstein at number 38, which was kind of an erstwhile anthology film, as we discussed. And I was like, mm, this is better, probably, maybe, <laughs> sure. than House of Frankenstein. But right above House of Frankenstein is The Black Room with Karloff. And above that is The 26th Student of Prague and The Man They Could Not Hang. And then, like, Freaks and, and stuff where I, I didn't feel comfortable saying this was better than those. Because they were those movies are much more of a piece than this. And, and I just kind of got stuck on The Black Room where I was like, The Black Room works you know, it's this it's this intricate clockwork kind of movie with a lot of really good, dark Karloff stuff. So my range ended up being 38 to 43. Okay. So part the other reason why I was kind of thinking The Uninvited is it has a really good feeling of dread. Like, you know something's going wrong, but you can't really do anything about it. These people are stuck in this situation. That was very similar to the framing narrative here. Mm-hmm. You keep getting told by this guy who has so far been accurate in his premonitions that something bad is going to happen and these people are stuck here. And then I would agree, like, I don't think it's a failing that it ramps up. No. Um, In terms of going from the Hearst Driver to Christmas Story to the Haunted Mirror, whatever. Like, for me, like, starting slow makes a lot of sense. So I don't hold that against this movie. Part of the reason why I had difficulties going above The Uninvited is because we have, like, The Seventh Victim, Vampire, Cat and the Canary, even The Walking Dead. Yeah. These were causing me some difficulties. Yeah. So, um, if I look down below The Uninvited, The Leopard Man, I feel like, in terms of looking at someone who is driven to kill, Craig, 
does a really great job portraying that mm-hmm. and the weird kind of switch that goes on with him. Frere does a really great job. So that's kind of why I was feeling above the Leopard Man. Yeah, because the Leopard Man doesn't really sell you on, like, the kindly old professor who's also the serial killer. Yeah. I, I can see that. Um, I'm kind of willing to say that we can put this beneath the uninvited above the Leopard Man. Okay. Because the Leopard Man isn't fully effective at what it's trying to do. And I think in the case of the Black Room, like, clearly it's very well put together. Like, we always say, like, it's it's a very good horror movie. I, I wish that there had been a way for the framing narrative to tie in in some way, like, thematically or something, with all of the stories. Like, there wasn't right. really, besides this question of, like, supernatural versus skeptic, like, I... Yeah, and, and, and as even I, that is like well, fuzzy. as I as I said earlier, like that theme is kind of bullshit for most of the stories, other yeah. than ventriloquist dummy. I'm good with this spot. Okay, if you are good with it, I am good with it. Entering the list at number twenty nine is Dead of Night from 1945, produced by Michael Balkan. Um, in the listing, we will probably put Balkan and Company. Mm-hmm. Um, but. One last time, directors were Alberto Cavalcanti, Basil Dearden, Robert Hammer, and Charles Crichton. There you go. If you would like to see this list, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as an appeals box. If you would like to submit an appeal of this or any other ranking, if you have any questions, concerns, hey, you missed this movie, hey, I like this thing, or hey, I disagree about this one part, let's discuss, we'd love to hear that shit. Uh, So drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed and listen to us on whatever podcasting app you prefer. If you could, we would like it if you left a rating and a review for the show. It makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside and makes the algorithms think that the show matters more. (laughs) Another way that you can help the show out is by telling a friend about us. We are into the home stretch of October. And everybody wants to know what scary movies to watch. And you, lovely listener, listen to the perfect show to help these folks along their way. So tell your friends all about Scream Scene, the show that helps you get into classic horror movies that maybe you couldn't find your way into before, and lets you know which ones you can safely avoid. (laughs) You even, like, rank them and show you where to get them. Yes. Yeah, we make it easy. You can also help the show out by visiting our Patreon on patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. You can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. During the month of October, all patrons get access to our special Halloween season content. Sarah is producing an audiobook version of Carmilla. And when you hear this, there should be three parts out already, a fourth coming out this coming Friday, and a fifth coming out on Halloween. Also coming out on Halloween is a special one-off episode of Scream Scene about the mysterious life and mysterious death of Vera West, 
the head of costume design at Universal Pictures during the classic era of the monster movie. I don't think mysterious, sir, is a word. I think you want more mysterious. Or do I? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. So that's patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. Well, what are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, for October 30th. Ooh, yeah. We are watching Isle of the Dead, produced by Val Luton, directed by Mark Robeson, and starring Boris Karloff. This is the one they filmed um, before Body Snatcher. They filmed like half of it before Body Snatcher and the other half after. Yeah. Cool. Great. Don't miss it, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.